Hi, David here. And I just want to let you know that during this episode, and in the context of talking about my guest's book, there is mention of suicide between minutes 29 and 37. So if this is a subject that is sensitive for you, just skip that part or listen to another of the over 200 episodes of the show. And now for this week's episode. What many people will forget is that their professional introduction or exposure to being a scientist might first be through academia, but then the assumption is that that is the only place in which to be a practicing scientist or to use the philosophy of science to do good for yourself or for the world. This is a poor assumption for those of us who would hold it ourselves, but it's also a poor point of leadership for anyone who would propagate that assumption and to protect themselves by making it look as if the only way you can be a scientist is to have this number of papers in these journals which have this particular impact factor. This is nonsense full stop and I think it, it would be something we could easily allude to and move on but there will be those folks out there listening who will still hold that as the criteria in their head that will be the black and white determiner of any success in their life. I make it as an academic with these papers and tick these boxes to be a scientist or I stop being a scientist. That is a hard line in the sand which should be much greyer, much blurrier than it is in many people's minds. Welcome to this new episode of Papa PhD. This week I have the great, great pleasure of having straight from Glasgow, Scotland, Mark Reed. Mark was born and raised in Glasgow and he completed his master's and Carnegie Trust sponsored PhD in chemistry at the University of Strathclyde. Is that how you pronounce it? That's perfect. Got it in one. Awesome. <laughs> Mark was then a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Edinburgh, and during that time, he was inducted into the SciFinder Future Leaders in Chemistry program. Mark's independent academic career has been fueled by prestigious Leverhulm. Oh my gosh, this one I don't know how to pronounce. You have to help me. Leverhulm? Leverhulm, you've got your two for two. Oh, my Leverhulm. <laughs> oh, I did it. <laughs> okay. Um, and UKRI Future Leaders Fellowships. He has held lecturing positions at the University of Bristol and the Hunter Center for Entrepreneurship. In 2021, he completed the Alt-MBA. His research interests include physical organic chemistry, computer vision, virtual reality, process safety, and the imposter phenomenon. Mark's list of failures wouldn't fit on a short biography. There's a link that I'll share uh, in the show notes for that because CV of failures is an important thing to share and to, to normalize. Um, and finally, he lives with his wife, two kids, and border terrier in sunny, with air quotes, Glasgow. <laughs> Mark, <laughs> I, again, over the moon, happy to have you here uh, and, to, and to finally uh, be able to bring you on Papa PhD. Yes, at long last, the, the ducks have aligned. We've been joking about how our various forms of social media make us look like one another in some form of, or, or other and how my friends have mistaken us already. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, that's, that's a new podcast logo, Mark. What's that one doing there? But yes, that's that's just one of, one of the, the many uh, pairs of dots that has 
brought us together and why I'm I'm so happy that you would have this conversation. Um, you say it's a pleasure, yeah. but the pleasure is mine, truly. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it, it's shared for sure. So again, you're not a fraud, uh, a scientist's guide to the imposter phenomenon. This book came out uh, this year. It's your baby. Yeah. It's your, your other baby. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the paper baby. Um, and uh, yeah, the paper baby. <clears throat> You've worked on this for uh, for a little while. Can you can you just talk a little bit about the why? So why why uh, mm. writing a whole piece, a whole book on <sighs> the imposter phenomenon for scientists, and and uh, also this title you said you you're gonna you're gonna talk about why uh, why it was called you are not right. a fraud, right? Yeah. Um... The truth of the title and the subtitle are, are two slightly different stories, actually. The frank truth of the title is that the book, the why of the book, the who it was for, was entirely for me back in the beginning. So before it was ever a book, you kindly mentioned from the bio some places I'd worked. The book started when I was a postdoc because before it was a book, I had gone into my postdoc, fresh out of my PhD, first postdoc position. That really for me was the first time I'd made a big career move of any sort. And by big, I mean from one group of people to another or, mm -hmm. you know, one organization to another in Lewis's terms. Um, different projects, a different palette of things that were entirely unknown to me. But what I wasn't really prepared for was those unknowns in their collection led me to start to do things, behave in certain ways that I wasn't familiar with. You know, I'd noticed things in myself that didn't really come up beforehand. I'd been very comfortable in my PhD. I loved the, the chemistry I was working on. I genuinely loved the people I was working with, knew them very well. I'd been there for quite a long time. But when I came to move into this postdoc position, that was the first time I'd found myself Google stalking fellow postdoc colleagues to see what papers they had had, you know, mm. what journals they were publishing in, um, what metrics they were hitting versus me. I found myself thinking more and more that uh, they were the clever people uh, and I was quite frankly stupid. I, I didn't know anywhere near as much chemistry or science as they did. And ultimately, that gave this all-consuming thought of the boss is going to find me out here and I'm going to get chucked out of this postdoc before it ever gets off the ground. And back then, back then, truly, I had no idea of any term associated with feeling like an imposter. I didn't know it was imposter anything, imposter syndrome, imposter phenomenon, none of it. I just knew that this way that I was feeling and behaving was was completely against the grain of what I was setting out to achieve back then. Mm. Early stages of academia, didn't really know what I wanted my career to look like. But I knew that if I didn't deal with it then, privately or otherwise, then I probably wouldn't have a career to speak of, which sounds mm. utterly exaggerated, especially coming from someone who's trying to tell a story in a book. But that mm. was the case. It was the case because... I think, as I now understand, many people will resonate with this point. But I'm the sort of person who won't tell anyone any of this. Um, I have stupid, false bravado, um, 
you know, the, the need to appear as if the skin is stone. And so mm-hmm. I'll keep it secret. And so when I first started dealing with it, it genuinely was in secret. I got it out of my head by putting it down in a Word document. So I was essentially journaling for two years just to say to myself, today I compared myself to this person. Today I stopped this point of work because I was panicking that they were much smarter than me and I couldn't focus on it. I was just narrating to myself that this is what was happening. Mm -hmm. Towards the end of that time, that's when I had started to read more and more about things that you could do to manage these feelings and to learn and discover that this whole way of feeling wasn't just known, it was well-known and it was pervasive and it was normal. You know, all things that I never (laughs) knew in the beginning. And it was when I started to write less about my daily experience and more about my summary of these things that I had been reading that helped me, that a friend said to me over dinner, you know, why, why not turn those little clusters of writing into chapters and why not turn those chapters into a book? So the two years that was private writing then turned into a further three years of of research where I said, I'll I'll give this a go. I'll make it a book project. I'll try to build some research around it. I don't know how yet, but I'll stop the journaling part now and try to see if I can turn this into something that can be of use. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's a super interesting journey. And... um, and uh, you, you did, you know, you've done something very well constructed, very well structured, uh, researched. Uh, Thank you. Uh, you. You mentioned to me uh, that that chapter about the chefs, and we can we can talk about that. <laughs> okay. And 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 how you know, and it's true that the storytelling and and the how much it can um, encapsulate uh, the extent uh, uh, in which uh, the impossible phenomenon can. Uh, can cripple you in a way in your day to day and in yeah. your like you were saying in your prospective career you you can you know <laughs> we will talk about it because they go yeah. to extremes these chefs that are mentioned here yeah. but you can uh, you can convince yourself that you are not good enough that you don't belong and then just and then just leave a path that might have been a very prolific and and successful otherwise so uh, first, you know, I, I commend you for for taking the time to to write this because, like you said, it's very prevalent. Um, a lot of us who do PhDs, we leave our homes, we leave our countries. So there, yeah. there's many things that might put us in a situation of feeling less than I know the person who was born here, feeling less than the person who speak, speaks and writes English perfectly, uh, yes. feeling less than the colleague who's, uh, you know, for uh, for different reasons, publishing a lot, and yeah. I'm not. And this is a big one. And, um, and yeah, I, I again, uh, kudos for for putting this out there and for making this and normalizing this conversation. Um, uh, it, it's really, uh, it's really um, of value for the community. I think not only for the scientific community, for the for the young scientists especially, but you know, given that this is our space that that we that we kind of move in and that we come from, uh, it, it does make sense that that you talk to them. But I think it might have it it, it it has value for people outside even the academic and and research domain. That's encouraging to hear. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so Mark, so this came from your personal experience. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I could have 
you know said what you said almost word for word the the the, the uh, uh tendency to not you know to deal with things in inside uh, within you and not discuss it uh discuss it or put it put it out there yeah. and um like i said because a lot of us uh who come to grad school come from somewhere else to do our or doctorate to do our postdoc um a lot of us may be in this position of fragility vulnerability uh but also it can have to do with our personality of not being super extroverted and and tending yes. to overthink things sure. um i i imagine that you know ever since you've you have your podcasts you've you've uh, published the book you've had interactions mm -hmm. with people and feedback from people what are what are people saying about how uh, how this this type of of uh, of work and this type of resource is helping them today in dealing with their uh, with their day to day as a young researcher. This is, um, in some ways, tough and cringeworthy because you're asking me to commend myself. <laughs> I'll put the barriers up straight away. Let me Take, let me think. Look um, at it as me, just me, me. I, I'm doing the commending. You just kind of, you're channeling me now. Don't worry. <laughs> well, let me let me um, let me try to in some ways start to answer the question by asking you something because the you captured me a little bit there with what you said about your own experience. What was mm -hmm. it specifically for you that in the past you've kept to yourself? Like what what was the what was the move in your career that made that happen for you? So uh as you as you know, like and this has to do with the genesis of Papa PhD of, of, of the podcast. Yes, for sure. okay. But um, what happened with me was uh, it, it was uh, diff it has different facets, but the main one is the end of my PhD. The, the end part was difficult. Mm. I was working on a, a mouse model that was not a good one. Okay. To have good data, it would take years of work of making our own model. For reasons of you know not being scooped, we we couldn't ask for a mouse from that lab. The, there were okay. different things that yes. made it very difficult and frustrating, and that made that at the end of my PhD I had no papers. There's other aspects too. I wanted to start my family here in Montreal. I wasn't okay. ready to now start traveling and etc. But I but I I think once I got to that end of the PhD with no papers, not, and having kept it to myself. I kind of excluded myself from the academic path. I did it myself to myself. Okay, interesting. And and left and 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 you know went into medical writing, etc. So yeah, yeah. Th this is why I said what I said. It this happened to me, and I think it it happens to to uh, to a lot of people. One of the things why I think it, this is uh, one of the populations that for whom I think the, the the book is important and an important read is. Any anyone and everyone who leaves academia at a certain point, I think it represents eighty-ish percent of people who come out with a PhD, and for a lot of them, there is this feeling of I left academia. It was kind of a failure of sorts, and these three years of Papa PhD, I've been trying yes. to tell them it's not a failure. Yes, society needs you outside the university walls. But anyway, I'm kind of expanding a little bit on on my why and on what happened to me. But uh, is this what is this? Uh, does this talk to you? This well, as I said, this was partly to answer your question, not to circumvent it, and it is is very very helpful. So two things there that you've very kindly shared is one your specifics. But two, the 
the extent to which some of these feelings can be generalized. So I, I wrote this transitioning out of PhD into postdoc and thinking about things besides academia, which we can come back to. So I, I, I wrote this and some people have interpreted it as being for, you know, strictly those within a PhD. I spent a lot more time doing the research and learning how to write in terms of stories because I didn't want it to be solely for um, the PhD community or the hard mm -hmm. sciences community, just because that's where I had come from and that's where I ex experienced this. Specifically because the one thing that has become tattooed on my soul through the process of putting this together is realizing in how many different situations, scenarios and environments, different forms of imposter experiences can emerge. So whether you're going from undergrad to postgrad or postgrad mm -hmm. to postdoc, or from academia to industry, or from industry to entrepreneurship. You know, all of these different transitions are themselves from one bubble to another yeah. and not necessarily specific to academia in any way, shape, or form. So coming back now to your original question about how I'm finding this is helping more people, is I've really got my, my book editor to thank for pushing me in this direction when i originally wrote the book i wrote the the chapters as you've read them so there's like uh, eight core chapters as an introduction and a, an epilogue at the end but in the eight core chapters i had written the stories i'd discussed the research i'd reflected on my own experience and it all ended with like maybe two or three bullet points to say you know here's a take-home message here's the too long don't read part of the book right mm -hmm. that's how i wrote it but when my editor took hold of it, you know, she didn't write any words, but she pushed me to pivot how I'd written certain things to turn those little take-home messages at the end of the book into what I've now called the chapter challenges, okay. which is a way of saying, don't go straight from chapter one to chapter two. Stop and do some work. Do this mm -hmm. for yourself. D don't stop with the generalized stories don't pay specific attention to my story because that's what you'll forget when you put the book down. Frame this through your own experience. Do these tasks, explore it for yourself, do some research for yourself and put some outputs down in these particular ways using these templates. I probably wouldn't have done that if I didn't have some really stark conversations with my editor to do that. But mm -hmm. that ultimately in answering your question is where I think it's finding most value. Okay. Because I've been able to use the stories for the the stories from the book and those challenges to turn some of it into workshops, for example, where it really mm -hmm. does turn the tables, and it's less about me preaching this message of not feeling like a fraud, and more about giving people the tools to manage it themselves. Mm -hmm. I think in the long term, that will be what the lasting impact of it is, if anything. Of course. I agree with you that uh, any change of space is has a potential of uh, bringing up uh, the imposter phenomenon because uh, because that's it. You're new. You don't yeah. know the space. You don't know the lingo. You feel ignorant of many things. But uh, yeah, the, the, the thing is anyone who has done that transition, the day after transitioning, is in that position. But the, the thing about, uh, well, at least... 
thinking about people who went through a PhD, we're very good learners. That's what we've been doing all our lives. So <laughs> trust in yourself that you'll be able to learn the ropes. And 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 one of the things that um, that I think is important is um, because you you mentioned this this thing of keeping things to yourself. Yeah. And a lot of us, a lot of people I've crossed in this in this space of discussing careers, transitions, doubts are, are a lot of them are introverts. And, uh, and I think introversion kind of amplifies the problem a little bit more. And, um, and one way to, to try and uh, one thing you should try and do is at, just ask, ask, find a mentor, find, if you're shadowing someone, ask all the questions. Don't, don't be shy. Um, don't try to be the, the smartest person in the room. And th this way, you'll be able to learn from people who've gone through it, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I'm maybe they've, you know, navigating no, I, a little bit. I, I don't think you are. Uh, sorry to interrupt. So do you have a mentor? Like, do you, as are other people in your line of work or outside your work that you lean on for advice? I do now. Like for podcasting, for example, I have someone. Yeah. But okay. during my life, because I am an introvert, and I've, uh, it's been something that I have a hard, I've had a hard time uh, finding a way to do it consistently and and uh, and and to have you know in different domains of my life, I see people who are able to and who who are who go and um, and and find people to accompany them. Mm -hmm. uh, in that part, in that transition, once I when when I was finishing, even during my PhD, I never had someone I would consider a mentor. Yes, and I think it's something that would have helped me a lot. It's interesting that that you broached that subject because it, to me, it's a little bit of a I, I recommend people find them, but I'd love to hear your take on it because I think it's it's an important question, especially for the introvert tribe out there. <laughs> I would say that finding genuine mentors has been, in many ways, transformative to the way I work. Mm. I have now, at this stage of my career, so I've got an academic fellowship, and um, after many attempts failed attempts to have fellowships in the past the one that i've now got was built with mentors as part of the scaffolding okay. it wasn't ever going to be funded if these people were not part of the team i have an academic mentor um who i, I hold dearly and advises me on all of the things that one might predict within academia um uh, where to pitch publications what sort of grants to go for how to start to build a team and to delegate responsibly and to think about longer term vision for research all of these rather obvious things what i've found i've needed in partnership and this is partly because of the way i am and what my interests are i also have an uh, a non-academic mentor someone okay. completely outside of the university system who is my mentor because they are a seasoned chemist in industry, but they are now a consultant and an entrepreneur. Okay. I hold them dear because outside of academia, I've always had an entrepreneurial drive. You know, let's be clear, I'm, I'm doing the book project because it's a sort of solopreneur type venture. I've tried other things, I've failed mm -hmm. other things, mm -hmm. but this other person has no incentive or drive or or metrics holding them to account that's anything to do with academia. And I found that very refreshing because they, trying to hold back my Glaswegian expletives here, will call BS 
on anything that they might sniff as me justifying things through an academic lens, which mm -hmm. is brilliant because taking research out of university and turning uh, a paper into a product, let's say, or protecting something that doesn't become a publication but becomes a patent, turning it into a service, that's an entirely different game than what most academics are incentivized by. So having that person outside of university has has not just helped balance my own view of things, but has also like opened my world up into all of these other job types, industries, ways of thinking that if I didn't have that sort of mentor, I would probably be a lot more siloed than I am. Mm -hmm. At times in my career where, you know, and I, I would still hold this as possibilities, you know, it's not always been the case that I wanted to be an academic. I'm certainly open to the idea that my career will not end as an academic. I don't mm -hmm. know. It's too early to say I'm loving what I'm doing right now. But none of these possibilities would even be swirling in my head if it wasn't for a mentor outside of university to have that more yeah. holistic and balanced view of things and the possibilities mm -hmm. that are there. Yeah, th this really uh, kind of joins this idea and this concept that I that I kind of drew up and proposed in a few episodes ago. So, well, so a few, a lot, some time ago, of when you're going through a PhD and thinking of, of people who are in graduate school. You know, we're in this society of uh, you know rugged individualism. Uh, this you know you you get you have to fend for yourself, uh, and you know keeping your emotions and doubts to yourself is part of that. And my thinking and what I, and what I recommend young researchers is make your PhD, uh, your graduate your graduate school experience a village. Have resource people have uh, mentors, academic, non academic have. Um, know all that's offered to you as as part of the program by university, health-wise, yes. mental health-wise, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think it connects with this thing of the imposter phenomenon. This because mm. if you go through life as as this rugged individual who is independent and uh, needs no one, uh, your your mind is kind of an echo chamber for these doubts and these questions and these these erroneous ideas that build up and that you, you start feeding them and eventually you believe them and we can talk about the chefs now if you want because it has taken historically to some extremes of extracting yourself from uh, even life but having a wider net a wider support net is really really important and this question of having a, a close let's say academic mentor but then a non-academic mentor for me if i could go back and recreate that I would, and, and I would also tell everyone around me to to try as much as possible to not stay in your bubble. Yeah. Have someone look at what's happening with another brain, with other eyes, because uh, it might uh, dismantle a lot of this negative self-talk that can happen yeah. through the difficulties of, of graduate school. God, that's so... So many things to unpack there. I'm, I'm holding dearly on to something that you've put very poetically which was um, your mind becoming an echo chamber for these types of self-doubt if you don't get support. So tying that into where we'd just come from in the conversation, mm -hmm. I think my number one failure before getting to where I am now, and the reason that that CV of failures is so long is because I, I did not seek more support. I didn't 
consciously look for that village of people to help with the likes of job applications or fellowship applications and so on. Mm. I uh, I felt at the time unashamedly independent, but more so than was helpful at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. I felt felt like I had to prove that I knew how to do it or that I could be independent, to your point on this rugged individualism. But it, w- it was only after letting more people in that any of those things could have any sort of shot. In fact, when you said village, I immediately thought, like, at the back of the book, my acknowledgements opens with something along the lines of it went from, like, a handful to a small village of people. You know, like that that is an exercise, as a project for anyone thinking about it. Mm-hmm. As a mechanism of thinking about how to get to that village of people, you know, I've learned about working with freelancers and contracting people and building a team around that sort of work. Mm-hmm. Because if I had to try to do it all myself, it simply would not be. So I think that's a, an amazing point. You mentioned the the chefs a minute ago. Like what specifically do you want to talk about on that side of things? The first thing that struck me with that chapter was that, so for, for, for if I remember two of them, it ended tragically uh, with with them taking their lives. Uh, uh, and uh, one in you know uh, eighteen the eighteen hundreds was it that 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 early one sixteen hundreds yes yeah, so it was very very early yeah and basically like you know falling on your sword because you did a big mistake and all of that happened in his head <laughs> uh, and and he could have he could have uh, easily found and he was you know very resourceful very good he could have easily found a way to um, to uh, uh, to to create a solution for a problem for a kind of a logistic problem that that he had and that made that f- in his head was like okay this is the shame of my life i can't you know i can't show my face anymore but then later on with the 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 michelin uh, stars and losing michelin stars and how that has also brought in modern times people to very tragic tragic ends and my, and the, the parallel that I was making was that these people were having this very negative conversation within their own heads. And these are people who have teams of people working for them. Indeed, yes. But there was there was something missing there in terms of helping them change their 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 view, change their expectations of themselves. And they're, they're, actually, there's another aspect which is. A disconnect or, or um, unhealthy self-image issue of if this yeah. in my life is not working, then my self, my image is not the one that I wanted. Then I failed at life. Basically, that's kind of what I read in these different stories in different, in different, very different eras. But that that kind of led to the the same very sad outcome. Yes. So there's there's many difficult things about this for for context for those listening. This is chapter seven of the book, which is all about social comparisons. The specific reference I think you're making, please correct me if I'm wrong, is mm-hmm. is this case where there's a difficulty of mentally separating church and state, the mm-hmm. part of you that is about work and the part of you that is the rest of you. And yes, if these exactly. things become so deeply intertwined, um, uh, one matches the other, or in other words, you feel like they're not decoupled, they are one and the same. The way that you 
are judged or judge yourself in the workplace is not just a judgment of your work, but a judgment of yourself, of your character, and even your worth, full stop. These, this was, um, this, this I think was really the most harrowing piece of research I had to do for the book. And that was, that sort of opens the chapter, but it, it didn't really start there. What I describe more in the chapter is why the story of chefs of haute cuisine of the Michelin star system has somewhat unspoken and counterintuitive similarities to things like journal impact factor. Mm-hmm. And the central question of the whole chapter for those reflecting on these things for themselves is if there is any metric in your workplace that you are unconsciously judging yourself by, if there is any metric that you work to that comes up during your annual review, have you ever stopped for a moment to think about where the metric was born and where it came from? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the tragedy surrounding the chefs is that they live by the numbers of these metrics and have in many ways forgotten how benign and innocent their origins were. I was bewildered to learn that the Michelin star guide is the same Michelin of tire fame. You know, that uh, that rotund cartoon with the three tires, the sort of white ghostly figure. Like I couldn't believe that that was the same Michelin as the Michelin guide. You know, it mm-hmm. turns out that the guide came out of a need to sell more tires. It was an entrepreneurial <laughs> venture. It was it was a, a a marketing trick of pure genius. I have this product. Not many people have cars yet. How do we get more people to buy cars and buy our product, which was tires? <laughs> the answer was the guide. But fast forward to modern times, and as as you've more than alluded to, that history is forgotten in the minds of those who will judge themselves purely on the stars that are the modern form of this Michelin company and the guide. Mm -hmm. There's no reflection on the fact that this thing used to be one star rather than three. It used to have no stars at all. It only existed (laughs) as an incentive to sell another thing. But nonetheless, there are these chefs for whom these stars are not just badges but tattoos on their skin and they are zeros on the bank balance. They are in many ways abstracts of their entire being. They are reviews of of themselves as well as their workplace. Mm -hmm. And in a few dark cases across the ages that's led to those shelves taking their own lives because they couldn't reconcile these things the pressure to work consistently at that high level for these externalized metrics was simply too much to bear. And the Mm -hmm. the thing you mentioned about the first story was what struck me the most is that one of the first recorded cases of this happening was long before there was anything to do with Michelin metrics in the 1600s. That was uh, Francois Vettel, who was like a master of ceremonies for his time. He was Mm -hmm. someone that um, wasn't necessarily just a good cook if a cook at all but someone who could really go to town on organizing a regal event to impress mm. the the establishment of the era and put on a, a show that would be remembered for generations that was the pressure he was working to 
So that working in cuisine and having those pressures existed before the metrics, but the modern variant of that story with the Michelin metrics in place is an example of how putting numbers on things can take you to a place where you forget that not everything that counts can be counted and you focus only on the things that are counted, that being the stars or reviews, let's say. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's dark for those reasons, but it's dark because when you join the dots and think about other forms of metric that have those same stories, it goes well beyond cookery and cuisine or chefs. Yeah. The same things happen in academia for a whole sure. different set of star systems. That's true. Well, like just recently someone asked me, David, so do you consider yourself a scientist? And in a way, once I saw I had no papers, and because also in my like you know, my family, no one told me, don't worry about no papers. If you because I I was a scientist all all up all up till up until twenty ten. I, you know, I, I did microbiology and genetics uh, in Lisbon, and then uh, well, did some different things, but, but taught there also. Uh, uh, taught some lab courses at university. Wanted to become a professor. Went into my PhD, and then the end of my PhD, in a way, I kind of assumed, and 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 uh, again, this was all within myself that okay, this is how it ended. I don't deserve to, or I I do not belong in this space anymore. And this question that came up a few days ago kind of got me thinking, mm. did, did I kill that part of myself? Yeah. And I've had conversations of people who have left spaces like from one to another and have this kind of sadness or regret yeah. of, of having had to do this transition. But mm. I wonder if I had had a village, if I had, you know, if I had a better network, whether the outcome could have been different. And I think... Why I'm saying this is not because of me is because I think this is not a single unique case. What I what I went through, I think a lot of people at the end of graduate school or after one two years of postdoc, a lot of people go through these transitions that they didn't expect, that they didn't desire, but that they have to deal with. And I think that's another amplifier of the imposter phenomenon afterwards because. If you come having this energy of, oh, I failed, it kind of deflates you for the next step. I'm kind of trying to reflect on why talking about this is important, not just within academia, but also uh, for any uh, transition, coupling it with the aspect of if you have other people that you can discuss with, these metrics, these numbers that for you are huge and are defining your path, they can, yeah. you can you can have some perspective and say, no, they're just part of a whole algorithm. And if, if your passion is here, you can follow up with it, et cetera, et cetera. I, I wonder if this elicits something in you, of, you know, some, some reflection. Several things. Um, if, if I may, I may at some point read you a very short Go paragraph ahead. from the book that captures this. Uh, but up front, I think there's something very important we need to capture here which is the absolute folly of an assumption that leaving academia is some sort of failure. What many people will forget is that their professional introduction or exposure to being a scientist might first be through academia, but then the assumption is that that is the only place in which to be 
a practicing scientist or to use the philosophy of science to do good for yourself or for the world. This is a poor assumption for those of us who would hold it ourselves, but it's also a poor point of leadership for anyone who would propagate that assumption and to protect themselves by making it look as if the only way you can be a scientist is to have this number of papers in these journals which have this particular impact mm -hmm. factor. This is nonsense, full stop. And I think it, it would be something we could easily allude to and move on. But there will be those folks out there listening who will still hold that as the criteria in their head that will be the black and white determiner of any success mm. in their life. I make it as an academic with these papers and tick these boxes to be a scientist or I stop being a scientist. That is a hard line in the sand which should be much greyer, much mm. blurrier than it is in many people's mind. The reason that I say that so emphatically is because it took me a very long time to find to stop talking about my own book for a second, a book called Range by David okay. Epstein, who is uh, an American sports journalist by training, I believe, but wrote this book, which is essentially a thesis on why being a jack or jill of all trades rather than a master mm -hmm. of one is the modern superpower, mm -hmm. especially nowadays, to, to move between fields and to take your expertise from one field into another or from one profession into another. It's not being the, the hyper-specialist in one domain or another that's important. It's, it's the magic that happens at the boundary between them. If you come from one domain where something has been established and a solved problem for many years, that could very easily be revolutionary in another field that doesn't know to speak the language that you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That is not just the story of Nobel Prize winners, but that's the story of the likes of Roger Federer who's one of the best tennis players in the world, not because he was a tennis player, but because he tried every sport under the sun <laughs> growing up, right? So range generalism has not just a, a useful place, but an underappreciated, privileged place in modern society. And so for those out there who think that they have failed as a scientist because they've left academia, the prompt back to them is, where else could your scientific training prove most valuable? It's not always in writing papers. Many, many a time, the best use of research stops at a paper when it shouldn't. It would better be placed in a patent rather than yeah. a paper. But sometimes things are done in the wrong order because the incentives are quite highly pressured in the wrong order. Leaving academia is is not a failure, and it does not stop you being a scientist. Well, I, I'm really happy you say that because it's a ref it's a reflection that really popped up in my life not so long ago, and it's been 12 years since uh, <laughs> since I defended, and uh, and I'm super happy that yeah, we could yeah. talk about it a little bit here, and and I really like your point of view on it. Uh, before you said you were you're gonna you're gonna read something, but I have. I have just a comment here from someone who's watching. Hendrik Iceberg is saying, leaving academia is a failure is an unfortunate side effect of PhD supervisors occasionally being people who have never left academia. Yeah, It's as much a form of ignorance and some kind of mental Ponzi scheme where having students continuing in academia validates the supervisor's choice. The functional term there, if Hendrik will allow, is, uh, is Ponzi scheme. 
you know, it's quite a provocative <laughs> way of, of putting it, but it is, it is in a way, um, you know, if I think about life as a scientific leader now, part of the responsibility of being that leader is not to build the house of cards that makes those in my care think that the only way forward is my way forward. The only way forward for you is to replicate the CV that I have. Um, uh, that's as false as the rant that I've just been on and that I think Hendrik agrees with. But it's about putting the palette of options in front of people or seeding how they could find the options themselves that the leader, the academic, might not even mm -hmm. know of. Many of the conversations we have as teachers these days is to prepare students for jobs that don't exist yet. So how could we possibly make things so narrow and thin as to think that everyone who comes through our lab is going to be an academic? It's I, I think that's a very, very good point. And and I wish that was the I wish everyone thought like you, because I, I really believe the same thing. And I do think that university graduate school is a great uh, nursery for the problem solvers of the future, wherever in society, in academia, in the government. Yeah in the private sector i do believe that very you know very strongly and uh so i really really appreciate it. and i really hope that this way of thinking is one that's going to be more and more prevalent uh in in the coming years a nursery is a good frame so it might sound childlike to some people but it's in other ways you can think about it as a place to explore and to mm -hmm. play mm -hmm. to figure ideas out and to, to stumble as many times as, as you possibly you can on route to something that you find interesting or want to explore in more yeah. detail. <laughs> well, I'm glad you like, you like my, uh, my poetic uh, musings, <laughs> my, 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 my metaphors. Well, so I'm just, I'm, I'm shamelessly <laughs> writing these down. It's <laughs> perfect. Uh, Mark, we're, we're really uh, reaching the end of, of, uh, of the, the, of our hour, uh, for 45 ish minutes. Um, you you said you were going to read a passage. Uh, maybe it's the right moment, and then I have I have a I have something I want to ask you. This was off the back of you mentioning these doubts that might come up for those thinking about different career paths, and I was thinking specifically about how this occurred to me when I was writing the introduction to the book, and and where a lot of my doubts began. So. This is from the preface of You Are Not a Fraud. Having trained as a scientist, the fork on the road that gave me cold sweats took the form of a career question. Industry or academia? Where should my career go? What jobs should I apply for? What sort of scientist will this choice make of me? Is there a correct decision? Will I love the choice? Will I regret it forever? And after speaking with many others, I realised I was not alone. Many of us feel this way. Regardless, more and more questions filled my mind with unnecessary worry and dread. It was like a crashing ring of dominoes falling one after the other in regimented chaos. On and on, questions would tumble around in my mind, gathering into a shapeless grey mass of anxiety swirling, darkening, growing and groaning. These dark thoughts had a hunger that could not be satisfied. Monstrous career stress was taking hold and it would do so in a very particular way. And that particular way was all of the imposter thoughts that followed. 
but I thought that that's what came to mind because a lot of what you were talking about is if people are having these doubts about whether or not they can be a scientist, they might think that the cho- the only choice is industry or academia, A or B. Why is it not a combination of A and B? And if not A or B, what is option C? What about <laughs> building your own business like you're doing here? What about some form of entrepreneurship or th- you know, um, third sector work, charity work? There's always more options than you will hold in your head between yeah. A and B. There, there's so many spaces that need uh, people who, you know, smart smart people, but people who uh, are going to be able to deal with new problems that are that are that are appearing now in society, uh, be it socially, be it environment, etc. So there is place out there for you. In, in so many spaces, and I, you know, we mentioned some. Absolutely. And, uh, but but thank you, thank you for sharing that. Now I'm kind of popping this to you uh, as a surprise. Now at okay. the end, <laughs> you mentioned these activities, these uh, these kind of like little workshops that people can do uh, a bit in between chapters of reading. Uh, yes. You are not a fraud. I'm going to show it here again because I think it's never too much. You're not a fraud. You'll find it in the link below. But I wonder if there's one exercise that people, you know, after listening to this episode, people who are dealing with this mm. impo- this imposter phenomenon might do to start on their path of, of slaying the beast, let's say. <laughs> so the book has 18 such challenges. Um, there's a little workbook that you can get with the book if you want to journal these things out. The one that's popping to my mind after our conversation and certain provocative parts of it is one from chapter four, which is called Genuine Imposters. I spend a lot of the book and indeed the subtitle talking about why it's feeling like an imposter is not a syndrome. The word syndrome is throwing a, thrown around without really thinking about what it means. But in yeah. chapter four, it puts the lens on the other word. What do we mean by imposter? So to answer your question, one of the challenges from there that I would encourage listeners to consider right away is this. Find the stories of the real imposters. Find the news articles, the documentaries, the books on people who have committed genuine acts of fraud. Consider what they have done and why. And think about whether you really want to hold yourself in the same breath with the same word as those who have been proven as imposters. Are you really an imposter? Find those stories and ask yourself again once you've found those stories. I I really, really love it. It kind of, (laughs) it's challenging. It's kind of a... Putting the putting all the question, uh, uh, you know, on its head. I really, really love it. So this is great. I so I, I really recommend uh, anyone listening to try and do this. If you're really d- fighting with this feeling, and I know how crippling it is, and I know how uh, taxing it is on your energy and on on how you can perform in your day to day personal and professional work. So take this one to start on this path of. Uh, of uh, getting rid of uh, this stage of imposter phenomenon you're going through. Because again, uh, anytime you'll change spaces, it might prop up again. Um, Mark, I, I, I'll try to kind of summarize uh, some key points that have that have stuck uh, with me from our conversation. Uh, I feel that first we could have talked talk for so much longer. And uh, I really 
uh, I really love to listen to listen to you. I I have think about accents, <laughs> but going back to the subject, first thing that I want people to take home is imposter phenomenon. Before you learn about it, it's just happening in your mind space, but it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Even very successful people go through it when they change. That's so. That's the first thing. You are not alone dealing with this. You have, you don't have a name for it yet, but after this episode, you do. You have a book to go read about it and and learn about it and understand it. You have exercises to uh, to be able to dismantle it. Uh, at least the one that you're going through right now. Second, the second very important one, and because it connects with some messaging that I've that I try to put out there is having this idea of um, you can't. It's really hard to solve this this uh, conundrum alone having a village <laughs> having yeah. people around you from different spaces who some who are scientists some who are not scientists some who are artists some who are commercials whatever it's really important to uh to discuss and to have a wider uh net of of a kind of a support network that's the second one the final one to share uh, mm. would have to be I really like the exercise that you shared because even when you find out the name is imposter phenomenon, the words that I use to talk about it are quite negative. Yes. So re-listen to the episode if needed. Try to feel the energy that was around the virtual this virtual table me and Mark were around, and lower your um, negative self-talk about all of this that's going that you're going through. Because it's going to help you uh, first think, understand that it's normal, understand that it's workable. And yeah, don't, the final, final one is don't allow imposter feelings to uh, dictate you leaving a passion of yours, for example. Find help. It could even be a men, you know, mental health uh, services at university because it, 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 it can't be part of it. Find help and, and you belong where you are. If you got into a PhD program, you belong there and you, you deserve to, to have a fulfilled future in this, this journey that you chose to be a scientist, to be a teacher, you know, to, to solve some problem around you, be it in your community or in the world. You deserve to be where you are. That, that would be my last thing. Um, Mark, I don't know if you have a last word, uh, but I just want to thank you so much. The, the energy was so great. Uh, I, I'm so happy to have finally spent an hour with you and, and exchanging like this. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, this has been a great, great Papa PhD conversation. If you have a last a last word of inspiration, you feel free to 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 share. You've um, you've kindly oversold all parts of me, so let me um, <laughs> let me promise to a live audience right now that this can be part one and the spotlight can be more on you and I'll, and I'll host <laughs> you for a part two which would be fantastic because this this oh, wow. does okay. to me feel like the beginning i'm so glad you summarized things the way that you did if people forget all about me if they never want to check out the book the things that you've said i hope will resonate you're not alone you're not like the genuine imposters and there are people out there who can help you my last word on all of it is to remember that feeling like an imposter is in no way, shape or form a syndrome.
Mark, uh, this has been, you know, it's it's it went really fast. It's been a real pleasure so far. <laughs> Super fast. <laughs> I was surprised when you said we were finished. <laughs> you know, we we're almost to, uh, getting to an hour, which is a little bit longer than usual. But it, but it's fine, and and uh, I think it's important. Um, I wonder. Um, one thing we can do right now, you know, you've just read this passage of, of yeah. your book. Um, for people who are just listening, uh, who are just listening to the podcast, um, can you share where people can find your book and where can people learn more about you uh, and maybe send you a message of uh, asking uh, you know further questions or, or thanking you for what you shared on the on this uh, conversation? Yeah, of course. Well, uh, as I do that, thank you again for the time and the space to have this conversation. Um, I'm genuinely surprised it's it's gone as fast as it has. So thank you, David, and thanks for all that you're doing. Um, for those listening that want to, to find me or social channels or the book, best place to start is my website, which is www.dr-mark with a C, M-A-R-C-dash read reid.com dr-mark-read.com forward slash book for the book that's where all the links to to buy the ebook paperback and audio versions live um but that's where you'll find um my my twitter handle podcast and so on so dr-mark-read.com is the best place to start thank you david and uh on twitter it, uh, you can find mark at at read underscore indeed which is the the name the title of your podcast yeah <laughs> do you know um I, uh, it sounds like i made that up but i very quickly came up with read indeed about 15 years ago when my friends forced me to play xbox okay. live for the first time <laughs> okay, I see. your handle okay yeah <laughs> awesome as easy uh, as that. do you want to just talk a little bit about that given that we're on a podcast it's gonna okay, we kind of we can make people learn about what yeah, it is yes thank you um so my my podcast is the read indeed podcast it is as as less a professional interview podcast like you david and more simply a a talking baldy head that is mine i started it at the beginning of my current fellowship about uh, two years ago now simply as a way of reflecting as often as possible about the challenges i was having as a leader and things I was learning on the way to becoming a better leader. So it's mm -hmm. often five, 10 minutes reflections of that sort of um, ilk. And sometimes I'll throw in a Q&A episodes or seminars from live recordings when I've been talking about you are not a fraud and the imposter phenomenon. Awesome. Mark, thank you so much for having been on Papa PhD and for this great conversation. Thanks so much, David. Thanks and well done for all that you've built. Papa PhD is a labor of love. If you like the show and have found value in it, you can pay it forward by donating to help other people like you hear Papa PhD. Even a $5 one-time donation will go a long way. So go to papaphd.com forward slash support to donate or to papaphd.com forward slash Patreon to become a patron. I didn't create this podcast to make money. I want to help and inspire people. Your support will help me cover the cost of hosting, equipment, and other recurring expenses needed to bring you a high-quality show week after week. Thank you for your support. I am David Mendez. See you next week.